podcast may cause severe side effects, including but not limited to severe spoiler exposure, millennial opinion insertion, and the perpetual ignorance of common sense. This narrator advises that the listener digest the following as entertainment. The showrunners behind it are neither six-figure filmmakers nor professional critics. They are casually critical. Hello, and welcome to Casually Critical, the podcast show starring two pals who love to talk about storytelling. Be sure to stick around at the end for our feature, Itch to Pitch, and find out how you can get involved as a part of our podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Carpenter. And I'm James Newton, your co-host. Today we'll be talking about the juggernaut Marvel film, Avengers Infinity War. Now, uh, Daniel... I've never really gotten a very good read on how you feel about Marvel films. Um, You don't seem to be, I don't know, you don't seem like the kind of person that would be into Marvel movies, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I just... You never really mentioned it before. No. (laughs) No, I don't think I have. I don't think I've mentioned this movie at all in our podcasts before. In the six episodes that we've had so far. No, no, I haven't. Not at all. And for those of you listening who might be wondering if we're sarcastic or not, I think that's a good indicator as to if you've actually listened to our episodes. So go listen to them, and then you'll have your answer right in front of you. Wow. But yes. That's a great plug. Marvel we're movies. 30 seconds in. The, uh, <laughs> the MCU is uh, the 21st century's think newest well i don't want to call it a trend but it's it's certainly setting some kind of precedent in place in terms of the the greater cinematic uh world of hollywood um a lot of shows that i've listened to that were young and were created after marvel was already well established a lot of them like to do one long podcast episode about every single marvel movie and Really, I don't think that's necessary. I think in the grand dietary metaphorical landscape that is Marvel, or that is cinema, I think Marvel is kind of like, it's like popcorn. You know, it's not it's not needed for every meal, but when you want a, a nice fix, when you want some kind of uh, entertainment, then that's what you go to. Uh, I don't think Marvel in general, and I'm talking about the stereotype of Marvel, I don't think in general Marvel is the kind of movie you'd go to for Oscar-worthy material, nor is it a masterclass in amazing storytelling. However, I think when it comes to the characters that the universe has established, when it comes to the world-building and the love and level of detail that are in some of their movies, I think Marvel has succeeded widely in those regards, and I do think it is worth talking about. Why, however, today we are talking about Infinity War, I believe, is that Infinity War has been almost universally praised by fans to be one of Marvel's greatest hits of all time. Even better, presumably, than Endgame. Um, And so, I personally would agree with that. 
I don't know where you stand, James. I, I see Infinity War as easily being in my top three Marvel movies of all time, but I think it's one yeah. of Marvel's best. Yeah, I'm trying to decide if it's my favorite or not. Yeah, uh, that's where I stand as well. It's it's probably tied with Guardians 2 for me. Um, hmm. Guardians of the Galaxy 2 has a special place in my heart. Uh, I don't have any nostalgic feelings towards it or anything. I just like the emotional payoffs and character development in that film. Um, and there are a significant amount of those in uh, the two most recent Avengers movies, uh, which are Infinity War and Endgame. So yeah. when it comes to emotional payoffs, yes, Infinity War does that well, too. Yes. So let's talk about this then. What do you think makes these emotional payoffs work? For me, um, I would say I think they're, the Russos are very good at planting seeds early on in their in their films and coming back to them later and making making everything feel more complete. Um, nothing ever really comes out of the blue. Uh, in these movies usually uh, that are crafted by the Russos. Um, Anthony and Joe Russo, by the way, are people that directed Infinity War, Endgame. Uh, I believe they directed Civil War as well. And um, Captain America, Winter Soldier. Yeah, uh, and then they're also known for their uh, their guest appearances in um, the TV show community. They uh, guest directed a few episodes as well. And I believe they executively produced 48 of the episodes, according to their IMDb. So, oh wow, they do have go? they have a significant role in that yeah. show. Yeah, um, a lot. We'll, we'll be talking a bit about the writing of Infinity War, specifically the storytelling. Mm -hmm. And a big shout out to the writers, Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely. They've done a lot. They did the Chronicle of Narnia movies, um, all the live adaptations. Um, they've done all three Captain America movies, and they wrote Thor The Dark World, which I find humorous, because I don't think that movie was any... Because people would argue that's at the bottom of the Marvel barrel, right? Yeah, and I know some people that actually enjoyed it, but I haven't met a single person that sees it as one of their top Marvel films of all time. So I, I find it interesting as to why that's there. But a lot of thought went into this movie. There were years, I believe, of just working on this story. A lot of drafts changed um, between this and Endgame. And I believe when these movies were announced, they were announced as Infinity War Part 1 and Part 2. Later on, they decided to just call this Infinity War, and then the, the next one they would call Endgame. Um, but originally, there was a lot of debate between the writers and the directors and other people in regards to... Well, between the creative team in general, in regards to how they would end this movie and begin the next one. And it spoils nothing, if you've seen this movie already, to know that this ends on the snap. And it's interesting because there was a debate raging as to if they wanted to have Thanos snap and then have a cut and then we roll the credits. Or did we want to do something else? And what they chose to do, I think, wisely was they wanted to... They've set a tone for this movie, a tone of despair, a tone of hopelessness, which isn't present in the Avengers movies before this, or, or a any lot Marvel of Marvel movies. movies. Yeah, Thanos is the harbinger of that. He's inevitable, I think, more in this movie than he is in the in Endgame. Yeah. But 
what they chose to do was not only end on the snap, but add a little bit more. So we see the fallout of that, the um, the deaths, so to speak, of so many heroes that we've come to know and love. A lot of new ones, too. Yeah, I. what are your thoughts, James, on the ending? I guess we're kind of jumping the gun a little by talking about the ending first. Yeah, that's all right. What... What worked for you? And if possible, what didn't work for you? The sense of despair uh, in general. I knew that they were not going to let everyone stay dead, but it was still very gutsy for them to end the movie and let us wait for the next one uh, to see what actually happens. And I'm all about the how in movies. So um, for me, I was crushed initially, but then I was like, you know, rubbing my hands together, I was like, oh boy, how are they going to bring this all back? Like, because obviously they can't, they can't give up, you know, the brilliant, the amazing merchandising and franchising opportunities that all of these different iconic heroes bring to the table. So like, for me, the question was not why, or, you know, I, it wasn't like I was crushed. I was just like, wow, like, very bold. How are you going to do this now? Because mm. they've already done the impossible by um, becoming the greatest juggler in the world and juggling all of these heroes. Uh, yeah. I don't know the exact numbers, how many heroes are featured in this movie, but they they successfully balance it pretty well, I think. I resonate with that on a very similar note. What stuck out to me about seeing these people dissolve, number one, I think it really works with the tone of this movie. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a better note to end on than just ending on him snapping. Um, because if you were to have show all these heroes die in the beginning of Endgame and then maybe show how they, they're all brought back, it wouldn't really have that emotional resonance. Uh, and I would argue wouldn't end on as much of a cliffhanger. But seeing yeah. the destruction Thanos brings gives us that antagonist for the Avengers to overcome in the other movie where they have Mm -hmm. to deal with this aftermath and how the world has possibly changed. At the same time, though, I remember when I was seeing this sequence of people dissolving. Uh, It was surreal. It was scary. But then, I believe, and I don't remember sequentially who dies when, and that's not really important, but I think it was Black Panther. When he died, he's very new to the table. His movie came out in February of the same year as Infinity War, there was literally a two-month gap between Black Panther and Infinity War. So he's very fresh. And um, I I knew they weren't going to kill him off anytime soon. So it, it lost that gravitas for me of these characters are gone for good. Um, I, I believe they would die uh, con- contextually wise, but... They'd find a way to bring them back. Yeah. And especially because Marvel is good at world building and is good, for the most part, at perpetuating their stories. But the one thing they're not really good at is keeping people dead. Um, and there's a lot of... Without spoiling individual Marvel movies, because there's so many movies out there, and I don't want to spoil all of them in this one episode. Um, yeah. I'm going to keep my spoilers here to just Infinity War. But let's just say there are many instances of characters dying in Marvel movies. And not all deaths are like this, but there are some deaths that are 
so well done and plays so well to the story that when it's revealed they're actually alive, for me, it takes away the importance that their deaths brought and also detracts a bit from the severity and intensity of the story that was attempting to be told. That being said, Infinity War has a lot of deaths that do seem final, that do seem there. Uh, yeah. We talked about the ending, and on that note, I want to talk about the beginning, because this is a perfect example of finite deaths. Gosh. The opening scene, it, it really sets the tone. Uh, you have to bring in Thanos, who's a huge guy, and yet, if you're not a diehard fan, he's not going to matter to you. Unless you've seen Guardians of the Galaxy, but even then, he just kind of talks a big game, but doesn't yeah. really deliver on it. Um, only fans would really know he's been lurking in the shadows. He's behind a lot of the stuff that's happened in regards to Tony Stark specifically and the alien invasion in the first Avengers. And so he's not really a big deal. So how do you make him a big deal? And I think smartly what the writers chose to do was make him a main character in this movie so he could really get to know this guy. But in the first scene, so much has happened already. Loki is killed. Heimdall is killed. I'm already done. I'm already checked out. I'm like, well, you killed Heimdall. I don't need to watch this movie. Like, Heimdall's the best Marvel character. But I think the most jarring thing emotionally in Marvel was immediately kicking the Hulk's butt. Yep. In the first scene. Yeah. Like, right off the bat. Because, and I think this was smart. Because had Thanos not done that, if the Russos and Marcus and McFeely, if they hadn't shown that... I think in my mind I would have had that thought festering. Like, yeah, Thanos is tough, but he hasn't fought the Hulk yet. Yeah. And even so, if he does fight the Hulk eventually, he would have had a lot of stones at that point. You know, the threat of yeah. the Hulk would have been drastically reduced. Yeah. But in this, Thanos only has the Power Stone, but even then he never uses it when he fights the Hulk. He never once uses it. He just... He's just as strong as the Hulk, but he's a lot more experienced. And I knew something was up as soon as Ebony Maw says, let him have his fun, as the Hulk is just thrashing on Thanos. Oh yeah, that was so sad. It was so cool. <laughs> well, let's not let's not forget that like that corpse that he's grabbing at the beginning of at the very beginning in the first shot oh, is Thor's. Yeah. The two yeah, most yeah, powerful yeah. characters in the Avengers have already been thrown to the wayside by by this this purple villain. I remember seeing this movie with you, James, and I remember afterwards when we were with our friends just kind of digesting and processing and dissecting this movie mm -hmm. and what really stuck out to us. Uh, what stuck out to me was kind of starting, as the Latins say, in media res, in the middle of yeah. things, just, but not... To the point where I w said, oh, dang it, I wish I had seen what happened beforehand. Um, yeah. I don't know if Thor was blown up by missiles coming from Thanos' ship or b beaten up by Thanos himself in a surprise attack. But when we start and Thanos is monologuing to Loki and he picks up this corpse and I think, oh, it's just some person. But then I look at the corpse and it's, mm -hmm. it's Thor and he's barely breathing. And I'm already... <laughs> my Crushed. I'm I'm already in shock, James. I'm already paralyzed yep. because Thor's already like this, and the movie has not even started yet. They haven't even rolled. They haven't even shown the title card yet. No, 
the title card came up after Thanos beat or severely crippled emotionally and physically two of Marvel's most powerful beings. Yep. And killed their most beloved, which every lady would agree is Heimdall, not Loki. <laughs> oh, James. Sorry. Yes. No, I know. I know I know Heimdall that is Saint. your your number one hero in the Marvel you know, card. He gets deck. dreads in Ragnarok. It's that was the biggest in... character transformation. Is that is that the arc that really the sold whole you on Heimdall? Yes. Yes. Put some dreads on it. That's the hashtag that should be trending on in writing groups all over the world. Put oh, it some is. Dreads on it. It is, Daniel. Where have you been? Evidently, I have a lot of catching up to do. So. <laughs> <laughs> so we talked about the beginning. We mm-hmm. talked about the end. Maybe we should talk now about the main character, Thanos, the main man, the purple boy. We talked about this extensively, or at least I did, when we came out of fresh from our first viewing in the theater. But for me, the biggest thing they got right with Thanos is making some parts of him likable. And at the very least, making some parts of him understandable. Thanos mm-hmm. is a guy who wants to kill half of the universe. That's not immediately something I can get behind. And I'd argue it's never something I actually managed to get behind in this entire movie. Yeah, I never really got those hashtag Thanos was right people. Yeah. <laughs> that was a bit no, much. No, me neither. But what's interesting here is I don't think the movie is trying to sell us on that. The movie isn't yeah. trying to convince us that Thanos is right. The movie is trying to convince us that Thanos is not so detached from humanity. Um, And there's a lot of evidence to this. Um, I'm not trying to argue, by the way, that Thanos is is more human than we think. I'm arguing that there are things to like about Thanos. And one thing that I loved about him that I was surprised by is that he is consistent throughout this entire film. One example I have of this is every single promise that Thanos offers to make, he keeps. Uh, And notably, this is in The Sparing of Lives. Um, there were a few moments. No, there was one moment. Uh, this was after the kick butt fight Thanos had between Strange, Iron Man, and the rest of the gang. Um, it's when he beats both uh, men, Strange and Iron Man, Strange and Stark. He kind of points the Infinity Stones at Stark, and Strange tells him to stop, and then says, "Hey, if you let him go, I'll give you the stone." And he reveals the stone and gives it to Thanos. Now freeze in this very moment Thanos has all of the cards he has all of them he has no reason whatsoever to spare Stark's life Stark was the guy who beat him in Avengers so he knows Stark is a threat intellectually and all the above Mm -hmm. and the only thing he has to hold him back is Strange's offer you know and he has every right to turn that down and Thanos agrees you know, and uh, when Strange gives him the stone, he puts the stone on, and then he vanishes. You know, he portals away. And that, right there, I thought, Marvel's going to go the Hollywood route. They're going to show Thanos just pretend to go along with it, and then attack Stark again. Um, and there were other moments similar to that, where I thought, oh, Thanos is going to fake out. He's going to juke him. You know, he's going to, you got to do it to him. And, uh... <laughs> 
Yeah, I just, that really caused me to respect Thanos and caused me to become, uh, in when they, when the heroes fight Thanos, not that I was demanding Thanos' blood be shed, but his, my respect for Thanos made me more intrigued when the conflicts happened. I was like, this is interesting. You know, if Thanos wins, I'm not going to be super disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) So, I don't know. What, what do you think of his character, James? No, I definitely think he's the best Marvel villain. Um, he's multifaceted for sure. Yeah, I like. I think I like him and Vulture from Spider-Man Homecoming the most. Yeah. Um, yeah, both, both great villains, both personal villains. Um, I won't say anything else about Vulture, but check out Spider-Man Homecoming sometime. If you want a good example of a good Marvel villain. Yeah, I think um, I think they really could have made Thanos rub it in. Uh, he really could have gone one step too far and beat the pulp out of somebody um, out of sheer disrespect, um, which I have seen in other movies, and I have appreciated the decision that character decision. And mm-hmm. I've been like, oh, yeah, that made me hate this character so much more. And it made the the experience so much more cathartic whenever they got theirs at the end, whenever they lost. But in this case, Thanos is the winner. Yeah. And because of that, there was a decision to make him more empathetic, more reasonable, um, which makes the audience question, well, maybe he's not so wrong after all about the world's resources. Um, the, the universe's resources, that is, um, it's because of all of those those instances of rationalism um, that you sort of start to think a little bit like, okay, this guy isn't all bad. Like he's a good dad um, yeah. and he's a man of his word. Um, both respectable things. That so. was one thing that really caused me to appreciate the writing in this more. Um, going on what you said of him being good dad. I think the politically correct term is a functional dad. Um, clearly he was abusive and all that, et cetera, et cetera, to Gamora and Nebula and everyone else that he was that figure to. Um, but at the same time, we learn in Guardians of the Galaxy that Thanos was, or, you know, is Gamora's father, for lack of a better word, her father figure. Um, and while he is a messed up one, we can see why he's seen that way. A lot of villains that have personal relationships with heroes, you don't often get that sense. Um, You don't often get to see their softer side, so to speak. Their side that makes you go, yeah, I can't see him as a good dad, but I can see him as a dad of some kind. I can see him in that role. I could see how that played out. And I think that the filmmakers chose to spend time developing that between him and Gamora kind of our perspective on number one, the flashback scene, how they met each other in the first place. Yeah. And then also in their interactions later on Thanos's ship, that was another example that, uh, that was the one that first got me thinking, Oh, he's going to lose it at some point when the Gamora disrespects him. He gives mm-hmm. her soup. He offers her soup. She throws it at his throne, screaming that she hates this place, hates the throne, hates him. And later on in this movie, it's revealed. He loves Gamora. But even through all of that crap she throws on him, not to make her uh, the villain in this, he abused her for years, but Thanos, to his credit, never loses his cool. 
he always remains composed. And it's a weird reversal. The hero is the one that comes unraveled. And the villain is the one that remains cool and composed. Um, Gamora tells him that she hated seeing him in that chair. And so when he goes to sit down, he never sits on that chair. He sits on the steps. And he's yeah. humbling himself, you know? Now, there is a deleted version of the scene, because the editing team did a great job with this. There is a version of the scene when Thanos does snap at her. Um, but it isn't about her actions towards him. It's more about the stones. Um, and there's some breakdowns of the scene, actually, on YouTube as to why it works. But I think the simplicity is, it's this writing technique called antagonist at rest where the antagonist is not deliberately going after that thing they want in the moment. We get a chance to see them in a different context. And mm -hmm. so it brings a lot of depth to Thanos' character, allowing me to further my appreciation of him and the amount of work done to write him into a believable, and I say this somewhat ironically, human being. You know, yeah. There is some humanity I see in this creature that I should hate, but I don't. I don't. I see less Mad Titan, and I see more just misunderstood soul that wants to change things, albeit mm. in a messed up way. I think believable is probably the key word here. Um, yeah. Whenever I said a good dad earlier, I think what I meant was a believable dad. Sure. Um, like I, I said, think that's what you meant as well. I sense you that. You could see him as a dad. Um, like, it made sense. Like, you know, you can... <laughs> You can see other like super cheesy villains and find out that they have, they have kids like Dr. Doofenshmirtz. Right. And <laughs> at first you're just like, that's ridiculous. Like this person's not even human. Yeah. Like, how can they even have a kid? And um, usually their interactions between their spawn are very over the top, especially yeah. in, as you were referencing Perry, the platypus. I mean, granted the context of that is different. It is a, it's a, animated show it's it's a cartoon it's definitely but, a serialized episodic yeah. television show that's it's a comedy show right but i find a lot of instances where it's revealed the villain has a daughter or a son or whatever um mm -hmm. the interactions they have are usually a lot more one-sided where the villain's like i told you to do this you know they treat their kid basically as an underling yeah. which makes us dislike them even more like hey it's the writer rubbing us in our face saying, hey, I don't know if you know this, but he's the bad guy or she's the bad guy. And right. look how much of a jerk they are to their child. Ooh, doesn't that make wow, you want them to die? they're even mean to their children. But the Russos wisely hold back and they choose to make us, instead of blindly hate Thanos, we were forced to consider the character that he has. Yeah. We're forced to consider him not as a villainous force, but as a person making decisions that from his perspective and from our logical perspective are somewhat understandable. I can see, I may not get behind, but I can see why Thanos is taking the steps he's taking, you know? Yeah. Without again, fully understanding or fully getting behind his cause. I think the Russos better tackle that in movies like civil war where you have Iron Man and Captain America and you can get behind both sides. You can understand where they're coming from. But at the same time, you know, there is a plot and there is conflict and they're both kind of opposing each other. So anyway, I think Infinity War tackles that well, becoming surprisingly morally nuanced, even though this is marketed as the team up movie of the year. And 
a yeah. bunch of like, oh, look, it's Cap and Iron Man and the Guardians and all of your friends coming together oh to fight the baddie. He's shooting the laser off of his shield. That's so cool. Oh, my gosh. What would happen if the laser bounced off the shield and then off the hammer? What yeah. would happen if those weapons? Wow. It's so shiny. So much fan speculation. <laughs> Going back to what you were saying about the Russos hanging or uh, holding back with Thanos. Um, not only did they hold back with Thanos, but they also leaned in with his relationships. I yeah. feel like a lot of films, um, you know, we were comparing to more black and white villains here. But I think a lot of films uh, use familial connections to villains as a means of progressing the plot. Yeah. Um, as a means of connecting the hero to the villains. Uh, the Russos looked at that and they saw not just, okay, this is a great way to weave Thanos into the story, but they also saw, oh my gosh, there's some really rich like relationships that can be had. There's some really humanizing moments that can be had because of these connections that he has. Because we have heroes that are on the other side with Thanos, like Gamora, uh, we can give him some quiet moments. Um, so yeah, yeah, they're really, really capitalizing on every single scene they have. Um, mm. You know, they aren't just taking the, the relationship with Gamora and sort of, you know, wadding it up into a ball and throwing it away once they say, okay, well, we have our connection now. Like, right. now the team has information on Thanos because of Gamora. No, they're going to push that further. They're going to lean in, into that and they're going to show us you know, a little bit of what his mind might look like um, yeah. in those intimate moments with his daughter. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, you were saying earlier something, saying how when the Russos needed to, they made these moments, these quiet moments. And I, I do think that uh, it's similar in many ways, uh, film writing and just storytelling through film. Storytelling in general is a lot like an expertly composed orchestra. There are moments such as in superhero franchises such as this, where you get noisy and loud, right? There's a lot of violence or there's a lot of noise. There's a lot of stuff mm -hmm. going on. It could be a war, it could be a battle, it could be an argument, could be the stuff the audience pays to see, right? But then the orchestra settles down and there's those quieter moments, those moments where we see more um, wrinkles and cracks and details in the character, in the villain in this case. Mm -hmm. um, and knowing when to be quiet and when to be loud is masterful and very important because if your movie is loud continuously yeah it can be good but it can also become desensitizing i'm thinking in this case of mad max fury road it's a great movie mm -hmm. it's fun it's energetic but there what it has an energy it lacks in depth i know a lot of people that like that movie and I'm one of those people. But I don't know if anyone would say they like the movie because of the deep, multifaceted characters. You know? It's primarily superficial. So, all that just to say, the Russos and the whole team in this movie are taking a lot of risks here by not having every second being a, a, a crossover dream for fans where X character talks to Y character or makes Z and reference. They make a joke. Right, exactly. Um, on IMDb, there was this interesting piece of trivia I found about the Soul Stone, because there was a lot of fan speculation about, ooh, what's it going to be? You know, 
for a while, people were like, is Vision the one that has a soul stone? No, that's a mind stone. Okay, where could it be? You know, Mm -hmm. uh, and all of that. And in the end, the filmmakers, it says here, and I'll just quote IMDb, because I think this is really juicy, especially from a writing standpoint. It says, the filmmakers didn't want the soul stone to be somewhere that audiences already knew, or to have it be random. They wanted it to be a secret for one of the characters, therefore becoming emotional. And I think that really just shows the amount of thought put into every decision of, well, we could integrate this into something that people already know about, or we can have this beyond Vormir, which is a planet no one's heard of before this movie. It has no immediate relevance to the greater MCU. It's just relevant to this story. But the one reason we should care about it is because Gamora knows about it and it's emotional. It's a secret. And this just adds another layer of depth when she's having her talks with Thanos. There's that additional conflict of Gamora knows this thing Thanos needs to know, but Thanos doesn't know it yet. There's this dramatic irony until it's revealed, of course, that Thanos does know. He knows that she's been keeping secrets. And it it really juices up their father-daughter interaction when their conversation topic switches to that of the stones once again. Because we're still invested. It's not just Thanos blindly rambling to Gamora about... I'm not understood. I want these stones. I want my rock collection to be complete. It's not just this blind interaction. There's motivation. There's an agenda. Thanos is trying to pry this information out of Gamora, and Gamora is trying to gauge how she's going to get out of this one. There's a reason we have to remain invested in their interactions when it extends far beyond the, oh, we have, you know, we have issues. Yeah, I think Thanos was a really good villain. One thing I was also surprised by in this movie was the Black Order, Thanos' minions. Oh, yeah. And that's not usually something I'd say. I usually comment on a film's minion or minions if it was something like The Emperor's New Groove, which has Kronk, who is, in my opinion, one of the greatest minions of all time because of how darn he is. He's a treasure. But these minions in Infinity War are anything but comedic. They're not funny. They're not there for the jokes, for the lols, for the memes. They're there to do damage. And why I like the minions so much is that they're really hard to kill. Um, If this is a video game, if Marvel is a video game, and you've been leveling up, Thanos, of course, would be that final villain, that one that you have to beat to win the game 100%. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that the minions you have to face before him are really hard to get through. And I like how the Black Order isn't just... I mean, they kind of are underdeveloped, obviously, because you have a lot of characters. But the movie never tries to make us care about them. They're more black and white. Um, the only thing that intrigues us is how they relate to Thanos, who is relatable. And so you have Emity Maw, who's this telekinetic kind of magician... Then you have, I don't know, all their names, Colobsidian and all these weird kind of thesaurus hodgepodges. That's not the point. Um, the point is they're difficult to beat. Iron Man and Spider-Man fight um, Colobsidian, the basically Thanos' answer to the Hulk, except he's his own answer to the Hulk, which makes it interesting. But <laughs> they fight him, they fight Ogre Hulk, and uh, he's they don't kill him. They chop off his arm. That's the biggest damage that they dealt to him, or Wong dealt to him. And 
when you see the Avengers fight them, it makes it interesting. Because the final battle for a lot of Avengers in Infinity War isn't Thanos. It's the Black Order yeah. in the Wakandan fight. And of course Thanos comes in at the end, but that's not even a fight at that point. So, I don't know, I just... Shadow goes out to the minions <laughs> for... Not the yeah. decrepit yellow Twinkies in Illuminations movies. I'm talking about Though, the... I really wish that I really wish that um the minions from the Despicable Me franchise were used instead. No you um, don't. Maybe three or four of them stacked no, on top don't. of each other in a trench coat. Don't say these lies, James. <laughs> that would have now that w- that would have been a great evil that I could get behind them combating. <laughs> James. I'm hurting. I don't feel so good. This is this is uh, tearing at my. Because they soul. haven't gotten enough screen time. James, they have had too much screen time. They've had an entire <laughs> movie dedicated to them. Okay, Daniel, did you know that Despicable Me Three is on Netflix? I'm not watching that again. I haven't seen it, and I think we should talk about it sometime. <sighs> what we'll do you guys this think? Later, should we subject ourselves to this torture? Yeah, let us know. Daniel and Please. I have a very interesting relationship with Illumination Entertainment. That's so saying something, yes. Hit our line. Let us know. Please. If Please we do. should take on Despicable Me 3. Goodness. Uh, <laughs> so, Steve Carell's fever dream. Uh, <laughs> so let's change topics mercifully. Please, for my sake. <laughs> let's talk about briefly, or not briefly, the fight scenes... In Infinity War, because I think personally, some of the best action in Marvel. And yeah. uh, before I talk about why I think it's the best action in Marvel, I'd like your thoughts on it. If okay. you agree, what makes it so good? Why do you think? Because it is superficially nothing really different we've seen before, you know, at mm-hmm. least in terms of hero fighting villain. So, what adds to this? What gives it that extra oomph? Similarly with how carefully every character's line was chosen, uh, I think every character's physical addition to every fight was chosen Mm. very carefully and uh, was character... Like like the few things that Spider-Man did in this movie were very much Spider-Man things. The yeah. things that Thor did in this movie were very much Thor. Well, Thor got a lot of screen time, actually. Right. But, like, the things that Doctor Strange did were very Doctor Strange things. I don't know. Like, whenever you get overexposed to action um, with these heroes, like, in probably, I would say it started to become desensitizing for me uh, throughout Age of Ultron. Yeah. Um, that's not true. That that's a, that, not that that's a horrible, horrible movie. Uh there was just a lot of flashy action scenes. And so it was like, yeah, they're just like blindly shooting laser beams and swinging stuff, um, which is cool to look at and stuff, but it just, it's different from the action in infinity war because it's not calculated and it's not personal. It's noise you fall asleep to where it's like, there's not a lot of narrative or physical reason for characters to do their stuff. I think it's interesting you bring up Age of Ultron because I think, and this spoils nothing, but 
the most interesting combat happens in the opening scene. Definitely. Where we see a lot of combinations, right? We see Thor and Captain America combining their hammer and shield to make a shockwave, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of interesting combinations that make sense because this team has hung out more and they've kind of gotten used to each other's uh, battle prowess. Right, and you get that Furious 5 slow motion jumping yeah, shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. Which they totally stole from Kung Fu Panda. <laughs> I think they also needed to have that quota by Joss Whedon of, I gotta have my my team all together in one shot shot, you know? Yeah, and then he does it again. He double dips in the third act. He does double dip, or rather pays homage to, because it's the same shot where it circles around them, you know, the camera. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't know. But yeah, I think it is a double dip. It could be classified that way. No double dipping, Joss. Yeah, come on. Your saliva's in the queso now. <laughs> this metaphor's gotten out of hand. It really has. I'm, I grossed myself out just now. It's okay. It's okay. We could talk about salsa some other time. Um, for me, the action, the conflict in Infinity War isn't... I think it is a combination of what you talked about. It is important in writing ensemble movies to distinctualize every member... And in superhero movies, it's no different. If anything, it's more important because you need mm-hmm. to have them have a personality and presence dramatically when they're talking to other characters and physically when they're fighting other characters. Um, but the conflict in this, I believe, is made all the more juicy by the fact for two reasons. One, context-wise, these characters, we're seeing them at their most... How do I say this? The most, they're most confident. They're most powerful. Uh, especially, and I'm thinking here of two fights. One is Stark versus Thanos and Strange versus Thanos. They're very yeah. back-to-back. But they're holding nothing back when they fight Thanos. Nothing back. In Civil War, Iron Man's tech has grown, sure. But he holds back when he's fighting, you know, his friends. Because... They're his friends. He's not going to try and kill them. You know, right, there's he's not no narrative. Make a reason. giant Iron Man lance and run three people through at the same time. Right. Exactly. You know, um, and this is the first movie, and this really plays into that theme of despair and hopelessness we were talking about earlier, where Thanos is this noise in the corner that's getting slowly bigger and bigger and bigger, and the bigger he becomes as a threat, the more desperately people are trying to find a way to counteract him and get him to stop, to stop him at any cost. And seeing these heroes do their absolute worst on Thanos, trying every trick in the book, everything they know, it's refreshing to see. It's different. Yeah. Um, and also, the, the context is different. Um, in a lot of Marvel movies, the plot is usually bad guy wants to hurt people, hero has to stop them. But in this, the stakes are raised to pretty much the highest degree they can go, which is half of all life in the universe is going to be extinguished. If anything, all of life in the universe is threatened because of Thanos. Mm-hmm. No one is safe. And everyone is affected. And... Every single time he gets a stone, he gets a new ability that makes him even more hard to stop. Right. Um, 
the Russos and writers added this physical rule into the fight, which I think is brilliant, which is Thanos can't use the stones unless he has his fist closed. And yeah. for me, I remember my biggest worry about Infinity War was, number one, that Thanos wouldn't be relatable or be a good character, which I'm glad I was wrong. And another thing I'm glad I'm wrong on is my worry was they would make Thanos feel too invincible too quickly, which is hard not to do because of the Infinity Stones and what we've seen them capable of in the other movies. Yeah, I was worried that by the ending scene, it would be kind of like, without spoiling too much, It'd be feeling like Captain Marvel, where I didn't worry for a second of who was going to win. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, And so they did a great job of that, because having that simple rule made Thanos beatable no matter how many stones he got. Right. It would make it harder to get to his gauntlet. But even in over the halfway point, the heroes almost get the gauntlet off. They oh gosh! Almost do. They technically do get it off. Yeah, but and he then he grabs, grabs it. it by a finger and thumb. <sighs> that oh, scene. Man. I was on the edge of my seat this this entire movie, Daniel. Oh, that that experience in the theater was unlike. It was a wild ride. Yeah, it was crazy. Because we were seeing heroes strain to, they're they're straining themselves. One person that was reviewing this movie on YouTube, he's called Mauler or something. He gives like hours long reviews which are crazy but he has a lot of good things to say you guys should check him out but one of the things he says in infinity war is especially about that particular scene uh because it's it was it's controversial a lot of fans are like star lord is the one to blame others say nebula is the one to blame because she told him the information that caused him to explode emotionally but this guy mauler really he says a lot of stuff I agree with. One is, throughout the movies, Star-Lord has been proven to make rash, impulsive decisions when he's become his most emotional. Mm-hmm. In Guardians 2, like you mentioned, he he hears news. Oh, yeah. Can't spoil that. He hears news that this person he thought was good is not, and immediately starts... Starts shooting. <laughs> he starts shooting them, you know? And oh, that's uh, great. yeah, and then in the first Guardians, he's in prison or something. Sees his guard listening to his Walkman, and then just immediately tries to hurt him, even though he a Star Lord has no weapons, and b he's handcuffed. You know, yeah. <laughs> so Star Lord has reliably proven to make rash decisions. Also, he challenges Ronan to a dancing contest. Um, right. That's that's weird and stupid. Some would say, he but does it's Star Lord really stupid stuff. Yeah, and so, so it makes I sense never to understood me. that argument of that was so out of character for Star Lord. Yeah, I never understood that. It's frustrating because as the audience, we want him to do the smart thing. Yes. But so later in this mo- or earlier in this movie, Star Lord makes a promise to Gamora that he would kill her if Thanos got his hands on her, and he eventually goes through with that. Uh, side note, and I have to mention this because I'm just a huge sucker for trivia. Uh, James Gunn was brought in to kind of oversee the writing for the Guardians of the Galaxy because, you know, he he's the one that really kind of helped bring them into the MCU and make them popular. Yeah. And uh, he didn't he only made one correction, and that was in the scene when Star-Lord is faced with killing Gamora or not. The writers had written in that Star-Lord never actually pulls the trigger to kill her. Mm. But James Gunn actually corrected it so that he does pull the trigger 
to kill Gamora. Mm. And I think it fits because Star-Lord has a really ridiculously black and white moral compass sometimes. I would say it's not a moral compass like Captain America's in the sense of it's universal right and wrong. It's more of his personal right it's and personal wrong. personal right and wrong. Yeah. If he decides That's it's good. right and it's right for him and the people that he loves, then he will do it. Yeah. And when he promises to kill Gamora, he tries to act it out. That's good. That's a good point. When they all fight Thanos, it's just simply an extension of who he is. And then the final thing that was mentioned by this YouTuber that I really want to mention on this podcast because I think it's so cool and it makes me appreciate this every time I see it. Just before Star-Lord hits Thanos, Tony Stark, as Iron Man, pulls off his helmet and just screams at him to stop and think. And the YouTuber hypothesizes that this is because the same blind rage filled Stark when he was fighting Cap and Bucky in Civil War. And he knows how much regret you can have when you Mm. try to... Because Stark was going to... Well, I don't want to reveal too much, but he he gets really violent at the end of the movie. Not out of character violent, but when he figures out something about someone... (laughs) He, I feel kind of silly whenever we dance around these spoilers because you should have seen all of these movies by now, listeners. You should have. You should be. Because we're talking sh- about Infinity War, which comes after all of these movies. Yeah. But we're going to dance around them nonetheless. Because we love you. Because we love yeah. you. Yeah, we love you. We love you individually. Each, every one of you. Yes, because it's possible, you know, to we can, stretch we yourself can. thinly and intimately love everyone that listens to your show. We've wired, we've wired our emotions into a network. Yes. Yes. You're the reason we live. Um, that's probably too far. <laughs> that's probably no, that's too good. far. good. That's good. Okay. That's, that forms a codependent relationship with the you, audience. You now need, they're hooked. You need to watch your podcast and listen to it. Otherwise, um, bad stuff. We'll die. We'll die. Yeah. We're not going to kill ourselves. We'll just simply die. This is our IV. And if you stop feeding us, we die. It's just yep. a fact. Yeah. That's how all Stay tuned for the are. next episode uh, to find out if if Daniel's uh, crowdfunded, crowdfunded <laughs> bungee cord snaps as he jumps off a clock tower. Yes. Stay tuned for that. But if you guys listen to our podcast, it's not going to happen because the only way I can die is if no one listens. Yeah. Don't let the anyway. Nazis win. <laughs> We're just combining all these movie plot lines at this point. <laughs> but anyway, so... All that just to say, Stark sees Star-Lord being consumed by the same blind rage that he once had, and so he's starting to freak out because he knows what's coming. He knows Star-Lord is about to make a very stupid and impulsive choice. And for me, thinking about that and then seeing it play out makes me appreciate all the more just the emotional... All this history and all these movies building up to this one crossover event. Now, I do want to comment on something, James, and I know I've done nothing but comment on things since we began recording. That is what our podcast is about, Daniel. But I need to say something, James. I need to get on a soapbox. Can you provide me with one? Okay. Yeah, let me pull it up really quick. Okay, Okay, thanks. step up. Thank you. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, a lesson in multimedia education pertaining to pop culture Specifically, the case studies of Star Wars and Marvel. One frustration I've had with Star Wars 
and a lot of franchises similar to it, but no one is quite similar in size, scope, and legacy of Star Wars, so I'm picking on them here. Yeah. James, because I'm using you as my target audience here for this speech. Yeah, I'm your audience. It's not, it's not really addressed to you in particular. It's just addressed to the people listening. Okay. James, I cannot tell you how many times I have complained, not complained, addressed legitimate criticisms about Star Wars movies, and then people that are starch defendants of those very valid criticisms of those Star Wars movies will tell me, Daniel, I, I, I get you feel that way. I felt that way too, but you gotta read this one obscure spinoff book that's confirmed to be canon by Disney. No! No! That's stupid! <laughs> That's idiotic! <laughs> That's... A Cretan would think of that. A Cretan would reason like that. <laughs> oh, you don't like Casually Critical? Well, you should have read our spin-off book series called Casually Miserable, a real-life translation, but, you know, those don't actually exist. Read our graphic novel. But Read our extended canon. And so... It just ticks me off to the upteenth degree when people counteract as if that's valid feedback. That's not. First off, I'm going to say this on the show. I'll be the first one to say it. I'll be the last one to die with this. It's not valid. If I say The Last Jedi has X wrong with it or that Rogue One has this problem with it, you know, that's my criticism. But if you're going to try to deflect that by saying, oh, it was covered in this book, it does not deflect that. Because that book is a different medium of media. It is not the movie. If the movie has something wrong with it, the movie has something wrong with it. If there's a hole right. in the boat, you're not going to patch it up by patching up a hole with another boat. You're not. That's not how it works, kids. That's not we're how not it works. We're not reading an appendices. We're watching a movie. Exactly. Now, people will take, maybe, I don't know, maybe I have too little faith in people. I'm sorry, people. But people might take what I just said about Star Wars and try to apply to what I'm saying now about Infinity War, which is, ooh, look at this. And if you watch this movie, you'll know that this happens, and it's really cool because it helps you appreciate this. Well, for starters, Infinity War is not a standalone movie. It is part of a series. You, There are previous installments, and Infinity War is building on those installments. We mentioned this in How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World, our previous episode. Yes. A sequel's burden is ultimately to carry on the legacy and the themes and the world that has been built on in the previous movie or movies. Now, this is where things get dicey, because I'm sounding kind of like a hypocrite. Here's my personal belief. A movie series is a movie series. It is not a movie and books and graphic novel and spin-off uh, comic book series. It is a movie series. Say what you will, but if a movie series is built to be a series of movies you watch, then that is its own contained thing. If you want to read the books or the graphic novels or other media to expand your appreciation of it and the world of it, that's great. But don't use those obscure, non-related media to defend the movies. If I make a movie and there's a problem with it, and I make something in the book addressing the flaw, that's great. For the world building, that works. But for the movie, that doesn't mean that the problem in that movie is no longer a problem. 
Mm. For that movie, it's still a problem. It's just a world-building problem that was fixed. But narratively, artistically, it still remains a problem. All right. Here's your soapbox back, James. Thank I'm you. I'm done with it now. I'm going to put that back in my antique closet. Thank you. Hopefully I didn't break it. So here's, here's a question for you, Daniel. Okay. What if I had a Twitter account and uh, I made a bunch of movies? Wow. And instead of fixing problems, I just started adding flavor to the, the, uh, the content that I already created. Uh, to expand my um, to expand my demographic, like retconning some of the characters. Yes, how would that fit under your uh, your personal beliefs? That gust of wind, Miss J.K. Rowling. That is my answer. <laughs> I think riding and trying to straddle the top of the wave of your surprise success is not storytelling it's popularity there's a big profound difference i appreciate expanded universes i really do i read a lot of star wars books and graphic novels when i was little and when i'm not so little i continue to do that uh if someone says "Ooh, daniel if you like this moment in rogue one or whatever movie, there's there's kind of an extra description of that in this book. And I might read it, or Wikipedia it, you know? I'm curious. If this is a world I'm invested in, these are characters I'm invested in, like even Harry Potter, which I read all the books for. It's a great series. It's very well written. Yeah, I'll yeah. be curious. I'll read it. My annoyance is chiefly when people use it as excuses to say, hey, that artistic um, error that you pointed out in this movie is actually fixed. And I'm here to say, when it comes to the world building, the greater world building of that series, when it comes to the creative consistencies, yeah, it might have been fixed. But that error in that movie is still an error in that movie. If I say Joe Schmo saw Billy Bob in the street and hit Billy Bob even though Billy Bob is never mentioned again or beforehand in the book, you're going to wonder, okay, who's Billy Bob? And why did that just happen? Joe Schmo's a nice guy. He never does anything violent except for that one scene. I don't get it. And if I cover it up later uh, with a tweet and say, oh, well, they had mad beef when they were little, and I don't ever write a sequel, perhaps putting that their conflict as the main thing. Well, that's a bandage. It's all it's all fixed now, right? But it still makes no sense within the context of that one book. But you're the authority, you're the author, so like maybe just like crop the tweet and put it on the screen during that scene. <laughs> right? Or just or you maybe, know, maybe make a special edition where I I <laughs> retype some paragraphs and there's there's a there's a road you can go down of philosophy of where does the author end and the work begin and mm. i i don't know if i'm ready mentally or emotionally to go down that rabbit trail i just speak from my own perhaps individualistic and yet profoundly specific concept of artistic integrity i yeah. i feel that your work should be your work it's its own work, 
If there is another work that comes after it, building on the worlds of it, like another book, then your work becomes a series. And even though it's in a series and your storyline is now a continuum, that doesn't mean that individual segments of that continuum won't have their own errors to them. As I so mentioned on my soapbox speech, I just... I wish people would have the courage to say, you know what, that movie I liked has errors in it, and even though I read a book that helps explain some of the plot holes in it, I can still acknowledge that for that one work, for that one movie, it is a problem, and it is something that should have been described better, or should have been dealt with more gracefully in the writing. And I'm glad it's, you know, I'm glad it's covered up. That doesn't mean it's necessarily fixed. And, as I name-dropped kind of unintentionally, The Last Jedi is filled with that. I'm not going to make this a conversation about Last Jedi. This is Infinity War we're talking about. This is Marvel we're talking about. But a lot of people have said, oh, well, this is covered up now because of X, Y, and Z. And while I agree it's covered up, I don't agree that it's fixed. Hmm. I'm not a hater of franchises. I eat up franchises for breakfast, and I love them. But let's be real here. Even on this podcast called Casually Critical... Let's be critical nonetheless. Let's acknowledge that, yeah, there are problems. That doesn't mean that this movie can't be your favorite. It can be. A lot of my favorite movies have problems in them. They have problems. When someone says, if that's a problem, I wholeheartedly agree. But I say, it's still my favorite. And they say, that's okay. And I say, thank you. I've got one more thought for you, Daniel. Okay. So, if in Infinity War, there were Um, references to the comics... Okay. That would debilitate the plot. Hmm. Uh, and if you hadn't read the comics before, you would scratch your head and be like, well, that just sort of detracted from the movie a little bit, just for a second there. Like, hmm. that was weird. What was that about? And then later you find out it's from some text um, published in 2010 or something about Infinity War hmm. from a comic. How would you feel about that? Well, I don't think I can answer that with Infinity War, but I can answer it with Batman v Superman. Um, there is a dream sequence Bruce Wayne has in that movie, which oh I don't boy. think... I won't get into detail in case you consider it a spoiler. I don't really, but if you if you don't want to be spoiled from this movie, I, I will save you some of the details. But we'll just say there are there are several references in that sequence, and even in the movie that are very much comic-based. And I believe it was done by Zack Snyder, the director, uh, with the intent of building on that later in movies, uh, which you can do. Marvel's done it before. They'll do post-credit scenes, but those post-credit scenes are separate from the main narrative, so it doesn't really matter. But Zack Snyder might say, well, I'm going to use this sequence later. It'll be answered in a future Justice League movie or what have you. But it's still a problem. And I do think a movie's first and foremost job is to do what it accomplishes. So if I want to make a superhero movie, I need to accomplish the purpose of that, which is to tell a narrative involving a protagonist and an antagonist. If I have scenes that are confusing or kind of go on tangents away from that, like I almost did with my soapbox, it's bad writing. It's bad writing if you just do that to blatantly fanservice fans. Okay. If you're a fan and you feel serviced, good. But that doesn't mean it won't be confusing for the vast majority of audiences. And it doesn't mean that it's not going to work, you know. 
or it doesn't mean that it will work, I should say. So that's what I've noticed in Marvel. Uh, there is a scene in Winter Soldier, the very beginning. Captain America fights this random Russian dude. And uh, his name, Beltrog, I think, is revealed in the movie. But if you haven't read the comics, it's like, okay, there's a generic baddie. Captain, Captain fights him and, and wins and whatever. And if you read the comics or know the comics well, super well, you'd know that Beltrog Leaper is a D-list villain. He's very... That just means he's not as well-known. Um, I didn't even know that till after I saw the movie. But here's the thing. When I learned that, I went, Oh, okay, that's cool. You know? I didn't need to know that to enjoy the movie. And I think that's the best balance. I think Marvel has always had a good balance between... Um, yeah, we're going to follow the comics and take inspiration from them, but we're not going to add things that don't make sense within the immediate context of this story. And that's mm -hmm. why, like in Infinity War, they didn't make Thanos in love with death. And uh, there's some people I've talked to who've read the comics, who know the comics, and I know enough about the comics to know this, but death is a lady, a female character in Marvel, the comics. Thanos has a thing for her, so to appease her, he kills half of all life in the universe. If you had added her into this movie, I don't know if it would have worked because having death as a person is such a big deal, but that has never once been established within the Marvel Universe. Yeah. Um, it's hinted at in a post credit scene with Thanos in the first Avengers where the mouth guy, he says to do something is to court death or whatever, and Thanos smiles at that. But that can easily be interpreted multiple ways. So... Concluding my massively detailed rant, um, yeah, you can reference the comics, but it needs to make sense within your story that you're trying to tell, and the universe, in this case, that you have established. Otherwise, you risk losing most of your audience. So, it's like, it's like an inside joke with friends. If I say to you, hey, you know, blah, 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 and you chuckle, not a lot of our fans might know what I'm saying, you know? Right. But for you, it's going to make your day. It's going to make you go, huh, that was really funny. You know, that was, that was great. Uh, I but, remember that time. Yeah, exactly. But it's not going to help the people listening. And it's ultimately not going to help this podcast, which isn't about our individual jokes. It's about our opinions on media that people have seen. So. Is it bad that my mind just furiously started thinking of as many inside jokes to say just now? <laughs> it probably is, because that would defeat the purpose. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I wanted to follow up on that point, because yes. my least favorite part of the previous Avengers movie, Age of Ultron, mm. is a part that sort of straddles this line that you've been talking about. Um a uh, scene in which the infinity stones are introduced mm -hmm. uh, and yes. a scene where I checked out uh, and didn't really care. And I was like, what's Thor doing? Yeah. Uh, and I won't say much more about the scene for the sake of spoilers. Yes. I know like, what you're talking about. It just like, it builds up to the third phase of empty MCU and I didn't know the purpose and I didn't care and it had nothing to do with the main plot. What did you think about that? Because that was almost whenever you talked about that dark side um, yeah. thing in, in BVS, um, it made me think of that scene in Age of Ultron. Sure. So I'm going to try and use my response to not only answer your question, but also bring this back around to Infinity War. 
although it is really hard to talk about just Infinity War without mentioning the other Marvel movies. Um, the whole reason that doesn't work, aside from the whole massive word cloud of things I just gave you earlier, is because Age of Ultron, for me, was a little bit frustrating. Now that better Marvel movies have come out, I kind of appreciate Age of Ultron as like a fun popcorn flick. You can watch it. I can re-watch it with you or other people and just enjoy the noise, you know, the action. can look at it and be like, mm-hmm. wow, this is an energetic, noise-filled film. But for me, what doesn't work about those scenes is just the greater intention of those scenes, which I believe were to get us psyched for other movies. Um, when you make a movie, which is exciting because it's an Avengers sequel, right? When you make a movie like that, you really should fulfill your promise, which is, hey, we're going to get Avengers action, and it's going to be great, and it's going to be fun. The story will be its own. Um, but it, it those scenes... I believe the reason those scenes are planted in there, aside from a wink-wink to the fans, is to say, hey, so, Thor, well, he's coming with his own movie, coming very soon, and then Infinity Stones, You're coming hey. back, right? Yeah. <laughs> You're going to come watch another one? Right. And then it's like, you <laughs> Did know you just make Infinity like a drug dealer Stones? joke gonna... with Infinity Stones? I tried not, I, I did not on purpose, but. Hey, kid. Here we are. Hey, wanna buy some stones? You want a power stone? You ain't got the <laughs> stones to buy one. <laughs> anyway. Um, but yeah, I I felt making a movie like that is just empty. Can you imagine an infomercial, right? Infomercials, I'm not saying I love watching infomercials. I mean, aside from flex tape, but that's the current culture we're in. Um, mm, delicious. An infomercial's job is to sell you on one product, the product that it is about. Uh, imagine watching an infomercial... That started by saying, hey, you know, we'll go with flex tape. Want to get some flex tape? I'll saw this boat in half. But before I do, I should coat it in this metallic finish, trademark. And before I do that, you know, it it can become boring after a while because it's losing its focus. Yeah. And maybe it won't be as boring because it's entertaining and fun and witty and creative and how it delivers these. But it's ultimately selling you on things that you didn't come to watch being sold to you. You came mm-hmm. to watch Good an point. infomercial about the product that the infomercial is about. I think Age of Ultron that you bring up, and I'm actually glad you did, Age of Ultron is a great way to dissect some of the other problems that I think Marvel has run into in the past with its own movies. At times, they can become ways to point other movies to you instead of the movie that it is in and of itself. Yeah. And to swing this back to our current topic, Infinity War... That's why I love it so much. It's not trying to sell you on other movies. It is its own movie. It is, as I've used in the past to describe other films, it's confident in itself. It knows what it's about, and it isn't afraid to show it. Saying, hey, I'm a movie about Thanos and the Infinity Stones, and now he ultimately uses it to succeed in his mission. I know what I'm about. And yeah, you could argue at the very end, with all the people fading into dust... Even the post-credit scene that teases Captain Marvel, uh, you could argue, well, Daniel, that's that's pointing us towards Endgame and how it'll be resolved, maybe. And I would debate and say, yes, it does point us to a sequel. But considering the context of this movie and what this movie's about, it also works as a great way to end the story that this movie was about in the first place. Right. And so, yeah, you can tease other movies. 
but the teasing works even better when it also is relevant to the current story. That's why I think Infinity War works a lot better than Age of Ultron. And that's why I think a lot of movies, some movies work better than others, because they know what they're about, and they stick with it. Hmm. So. So while we're talking about flaws, okay. um, we've talked a lot about how great this movie is and how much we like it. It is good. What's your least favorite part of Infinity War? My least favorite part, okay. Because I was expecting it to be the Peter Quill thing. Uh, but you quickly yeah. deflected that. So, I think it used to be maybe. I don't remember everything I told you during our first viewing of it. Yeah, but I think some people that we watched it with were frustrated about that part. Yeah, but upon greater contemplation and my understanding of the character, again, not through some obscure book, but through the previous movies in this established series, I came to appreciate and understand. Yeah, okay, I understand why he did that now, and. Of all the characters to do that, it really makes sense for Peter Quill to be the one to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the Wakandan fight sequence could have Dang been it. improved. What? Ugh, you stole mine. Dang it. Here's the thing. If Give I dug, if I paused my recording and took about another hour or two to really think of something, if I rewatched the whole movie and just analyzed it, uh, I could find a few things, but that would be nitpicking. Um, That's not what we're here for. No, no. We're, we're about the story here. Here's why I think Wakanda doesn't work entirely. I think parts of it... I think the seeds are okay. If you want to have a final battle in Wakanda, that's not the problem. The problem is how they went about it. Here's the thing. You have a few sides of... You have a few things going on in your universe during the Wakandan battle. You have Stark, Strange, and the Guardians fighting Thanos... You have Thor, Rocket, and Groot forging the axe, Stormbreaker. And then you have Wakanda. Here's what Wakanda does... uh, Here's what Wakanda doesn't that the other two things do. Wakanda doesn't have any stakes. There's no reason for us to believe that our heroes are in grave danger. Do we believe they're in danger? Sure! They're in a war zone. They're fighting the Outriders, those four-legged creatures that no one seems to remember the names of. I didn't even know they had names. Which I got from the comics, so maybe that makes me a bit of a hypocrite. No, it doesn't. (gasps) No, it doesn't. It's additional information that doesn't... It's not a flaw that needs to be addressed. Okay, okay. If you never knew their names, it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't be the end of the world. Yeah. So they're called the Outriders. For those of you that want to name them appropriately, they're called the Outriders. It won't make one difference whether or not you know their names. So I'm not a hypocrite. Thank you. Um, Here's what I'm going to say, though. The heroes are in danger, but they're never in grave danger. The only one who's in grave danger is Vision, because it's been teased to us the whole movie, which, by the way, amazing, right? He gets stabbed, I think. He's going to die in the sequence where they fight those other two Black Order people, but he doesn't. He survives in... Uh, Wakanda, it's like, oh, he's going to get stabbed by the goblin guy with the spear. But nope, he doesn't. But then at the very end, he does. But he survived. But but then Thanos is coming to kill. But Scarlet Witch kills. But then Thanos brings. And then Thanos kills him. Russo's Marcus McFeely, you put me on quite the trip. <laughs> they really did toy with us on that one. Which is great writing on their part. But that's not the point. This is not what we're talking about. Here's what we're talking about. Um, everyone else is fine. Like, there's a massive uh, 
multi-bladed machine that comes out of the ground at one point. And after Scarlet Witch destroys that, I'm left thinking, okay, why didn't more people get killed by it? I mean, look. Oh yeah, I forgot about that thing. Yeah, exactly. It's a forgettable fight. Uh, in the first, uh, the first movie, or the sorry, the first scene, Heimdall dies. Loki dies. In the scenes that are going on right now, Strange and Stark are getting beaten up. Stark gets stabbed. There's, I think, our second watching of Infinity War, the friends we were seeing it with. One of them, the way she was crying, I genuinely think she thought this is where Stark dies. Yeah. Because it was played that way. And here's the thing. Even though Stark ends up getting fine, he, like, nano-heals himself with his particles, he's still wounded. <laughs> Just put you nano know? in front of anything. Right. But, I mean, to the movie's <laughs> credit, it doesn't instantly heal him. It, it begins to heal him, but he's still hurt. He's yeah. still hurt by he's his still own blade. clenching his side at the beginning of Endgame. Yes, yes. There, there are consequences to it. And Strange ends up humiliated in the end because he, you know, gives up the stone. Even though he says, it was, it was the only way. You know, he... There's loss. There's gravity there. Um, and with Thor getting his axe, yeah, he survives the whole axe-getting thing, but he, he puts everything on the line. Both of these scenes contribute to the hopelessness of the movie. With Wakanda, it doesn't contribute to the hopelessness of the movie, which is the ultimate, I think, problem. Because, like, what's the problem at first? Okay, the Outriders can't get through. Well, that doesn't really match with the whole tone of hopelessness. Yeah. So Wakanda has this impenetrable force field. That's not really a problem. A few Outriders get through, but they're severely burned. But then they start going around to the city... And the Black Panther is concerned about the safety of people there, so he thinks, let's just funnel them in through here. Which is fine. That's fine. It's totally understandable. So he opens up a section of the force field, they all get through, and the battle begins. Uh, what happens next? Cap, Black Panther, lead the charge, they fight the guys. Going on what you said earlier, James, as I'm freshly verbally processing this, no one's powers are really displayed. Like, Cap bashes guys, Black Panther bashes guys black widow bashes guys uh okole i think is her name for black panther Okoye. she she ba like everyone's just bashing each other the only thing that's relatively interesting is the hulk buster but that doesn't really get juicy until he fights cole obsidian and kills him yeah. later with the force field so yeah anyway i want to hear what you have to say about the scene but that's that's my diagnosis is tonally it doesn't match the movie in terms of hopelessness, it doesn't add to it. And the hero's powers, like we mentioned earlier, aren't really taken advantage of. But that's just my opinion. I want to hear your thoughts about this scene. Why do you think no, it's... Oh, yeah, unique? I think I think uh, my least favorite part of Infinity War is also the Wakanda fight. Um, and I was going to say my big thing is that I'm just tired of big disposable armies. Yeah. Um, really tired of that. I think they got me in the first part, though. Because when the Outriders are introduced, they're these mindless things. Because the Ultron robots in Age of Ultron, <clears throat> yeah. they're just kind of beep, boop, boop, and they shoot things. And the Chitauri army in the first Avengers, they're, they kind of roar, but they also like have guns and they go pew, pew. The Outriders are primal. They're savage. They're just... They just... They're running. They're scary, you know? Oh, don't they're get me wrong. They're definitely the best of the... Best of but the three disposable I, armies. What you might be getting at, if I'm reading you wrong here, is I think they had promise in the beginning, but they just weren't taken advantage of that well, you know? 
Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Um, maybe there's some way they could have taken advantage of just this kind of beastly. I don't know. Keep yeah. keep sharing your thoughts. Um, I think they put a lot of work into establishing the Black Order, mm-hmm. and they didn't do much with them. Um, so my patch to that, Daniel, is something I'm just going to jump off canon right now. I'm just going to jump off the canon diving board and into my own pool of thoughts. Do it. Um, I think that there should have been another member of the Black Order Hmm. um, that was some sort of minion that had a motivation and had had characterization to them, sort of like the other characters. And this character, maybe... They started really small, like they started as big as the size of a, a, a bullfrog or something. Yeah. And so they just set him down in Wakanda to sit. And he slowly grows and grows and grows. And he gets to be the size of Wakanda. He's super huge. And wow. So, like, I don't know. I, I just think it's a different way of creating stakes. And it centers it around one character instead of a mindless army. So that has creating been done like a there's a ticking time bomb element. Yes. Whereas they're fighting they're fighting the outriders, but that's not the point. The outriders are just a distraction, while yeah. the real threat is kind of building. Okay. Yeah. So I've actually I've kind of thought this thing through, and maybe, um, maybe you could help me out with this. Sure. But like, let's brainstorm. This will be our itch yeah. to pitch. Make a better Wakanda be... scene. Um, and we can think of a name for this for this minion too later. But I was originally thinking, oh, he's just going to start. He could start as a big guy, and we could just throw him down to earth. But then I was like, well, if you can just chuck him down to earth, then he could just like smash through the shield in Wakanda, yeah. right? Right. Um, so maybe like, first of all, it's it's definitely the Russo way to plant a seed and watch it grow as the movie goes on. So slowly show this character growing and growing and getting bigger. Maybe it feeds on something. Maybe it's it. Maybe we could channel the primal essence, like you said, of the outriders by having it like feed on some Wakandan farmers or something. I don't know. It's kind of dark, but like (laughs) it could, it could feed and then like get astronomically bigger as it feeds. Yeah. Um, and so as it gets bigger and bigger, uh, we could demonstrate some teamwork um, sure. between all of these characters, all of these yeah. Avengers. Um, because I just feel like it was impersonal. It was pew pew. It was swoosh swoosh. Uh, right. okay. I, I'm kind of regretting what I said earlier about the action and how everything, every blow was deliberate. I was specifically thinking about the scenes where they're fighting Thanos. Right. I didn't think That's of true. the Wakanda scene where it's pew pew swoosh swoosh. Uh, where it's like, oh, Bucky's got a machine gun. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, he's got an M4. Yeah, America boy. assault rifle. Yeah. yeah. And he's just like shooting stuff. Communist and, Russia. What? Wait, what? Right. Sorry. And like, and like Black Panther's jumping around Superman style and just like exploding everything with his weird kinetic yeah. energy suit that doesn't make any sense. I, so you're throwing a lot at me, and I, I really just want to kind of go back to your main idea of this this yeah. minion here that kind of grows. Yeah, um, okay. I'm going to play devil's advocate and say, here's why I think it doesn't work, and here's what we could do better. Okay. I don't think it works because we already have a big threat, and that's Thanos. Um, okay. Having two big guys, it's going to be distracting and I think fatiguing for the audience because everyone's fighting this one big guy in Wakanda, and we all know how it's going to end. He's going to die somehow because Thanos is the real threat. He's the main character of this movie. Um, 
Plus, you already have Cole Obsidian, who's kind of like the Hulk. He's built like Hulk and like Thanos. Because yes. I feel it just... I feel it becomes this inadvertent conflict of who's the biggest guy in the room. And it'll be confusing if we cut between this mountainous guy and Thanos fighting these people. Because next Thanos... I don't know. It just... It becomes confusing. So the mountainous guy is bigger, but Thanos is narratively bigger. So it becomes confusing. Who is the bigger threat here? And in what sense? Here's yeah. what I would do differently. Instead of making a physically bigger threat, if I was just given the ingredients I had, what I would do is I would rewrite how the Black Order reacts within the scene. Because they're all there. The entire Black Order is. You have the woman, you have Cole Obsidian, and you have the Goblin guy. Um, so let's use the pawns we do have here. How can we make this better? Well... In Guardians of the Galaxy, and this is me just scratch idea making, okay? So I'm founding these ideas as I go. I'm thinking of Rocket Raccoon and his technological prowess, especially on the fly. He's really good at making stuff on the fly with just random ingredients he has. He makes some, uh, he makes an explosive device for uh, Ronin in Guardians that can decimate a small moon, right? Mm-hmm. So he's capable, and he's in Wakanda, which is technically a christmas party for him so here's an idea i had what if the black order keeps throwing stuff at them and there's outriders those are kind of like noise so yeah you can blow this big stuff up but you also got to keep an eye on those little guys because they can easily escape you um they keep throwing bigger and bigger stuff and rockets scrambling to find a bigger and bigger power source just not power source but just more explosives and the pace of the bad guys is slowly starting to overtake the pace that Rocket and the Wakandonians can build and throw bigger stuff at them. And pretty soon, perhaps, something comes up that's big that requires Vision to use his Infinity Stone. Either way, putting Vision into the fight. Um, There can also be some emotional dynamics between the Black Order and one specific Avenger, though I can't think of who would do that. I don't know. They kind of play off it when Black Widow and Okoye and Scarlet Witch face off against the female Black Rider thing. Um, I don't know. But that's kind of where I would start is I like your idea of a ticking time bomb. But I'm thinking more of an emotional bomb where Rocket gets more and more distressed as he's frantically trying to put together grenades and stuff. And his mind is being stretched because he's forced to think on the fly for a very long period of time. So this kind of goes along the sense of hopelessness. Let's push our heroes to their limits and then some. Let's amp this up. Uh, Let's also show the Black Order getting physically into the fight, which I think was missing. They didn't initially do it. They kind of used the Outriders, but even after the Outriders came in and the force field went up, they didn't really do much. They just kind of said, all right, right, send in this, send in this. So let's have them send themselves in really early on. And... Honestly, I'd like to see some blood get shed. Let's have them kill at least one supporting character. Um, I don't know who it would be. I I don't. I don't. Um, We can let the fans decide that one. Or maybe you. I don't know. But um, I want there to be some kind of stakes. Someone's life gets endangered early on. Someone gets crippled early on. Maybe Bucky's arm gets chopped off or electrocuted and no longer works. Something that causes one of our heroes to be put in a very uncomfortable position for us, the audience. And we're, we're saying to ourselves, um, 
uh, that's not good. That's not good at all. Um, something like that. The other problem, too, with the Wakandan fight sequence that we need to address is, and this might be fun, Thor's entrance. It's majestic. It's pretty awesome. Uh, but yeah. it's not as majestic because it's not a fight I'm worried about the heroes winning. Um, yeah. And so, I don't know. But, yeah, that's what I'd do. I'd play more with the emotional stakes of the hero side. Have them struggle, have them suffer, and have the bad guys close in a lot more dramatically. And kind of amp up their side of things, narratively speaking. Okay. Yeah. So, doesn't mean I'm right, but... I think there's a lot of things you can do to play with this scene. There's a lot of ways you can improve on this. And I think you and I are both right in the sense that we're kind of adding this ticking time bomb, sort of like, you really need to address this, and you need to fight this army, and destroy the Black Order, you know. Yeah, adding more Thanos. to that. Yeah, oh yeah, that that big guy in the sky yeah, with the rock collection. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. but yeah, I think... It, the battle's definitely an issue. Uh, Marvel has seemed to have a consistent past of struggling with big third-act battles. Um, I don't think it's a struggle. I think it's an addiction. Yes. <laughs> and I do think they need to take notes from Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, during the Helm's Deep sequence. That's a master class in how you tell a massive, epic battle. Lord of the Rings is full of those, but Helm's Deep is one that, you know, there's a lot of things going on at once, and it's a... It's a gritty fight, so... I feel like I have said this a lot, but I don't know if I've said it on the podcast. Every Mm. time I watch the Battle of Helm's Deep, I'm like, how did they get out of this again? Like, how did they succeed? Like, it's just so bleak and so hopeless. Like, how do they do this again? Yeah. So, yeah, that's well done. All right, so let's move on to Itch to Pitch. Uh, What do we got this week? We actually do not have any pitches, Daniel. Oh, really? Yep. Okay. Not a single pitch. So this is our opportunity to tell you, the fans, to reach out to us at Casually Critical Podcast on Instagram or email us at casuallycriticalpodcast at gmail.com or shoot us a DM on our Facebook page. And follow us on all of those places for updates on when we're going to post things. Because uh, I get sick of checking, um, you know, whenever a new episode of the Adventure Zone is up, I want to, like, hop on and, like, get a notification. But there's no notification system. So yeah. we have that Instagram and we have that Facebook so that you get notifications whenever a new episode's posted. So you can use those avenues to send us our, um, the itch to pitch stuff. Yeah. And what is an itch to pitch, Daniel? Itch to pitch. It's uh, it's an idea you have for something that James and I can discuss. So it could be you have the newest idea for the Fast and Furious trilogy, or perhaps you have a um, could be an existing franchise. Maybe you have your own idea of the Wakanda battle revisited that you want us to to run by us, um, or it could be a personally original idea. Uh, we've had some ideas in the past of, like, time traveling and teenage Hitler is brought into the present or whatever. I don't know. It it could range anywhere in complexity. Um, some people have shared their personal original ideas. Some people have just shared ideas that they've had. It doesn't have to be your personal baby you've been developing for years. could be something yeah. simple. Just whatever you think would be fun for us to talk about. And here's the thing. Even if you don't have an itch to pitch... 
there's still no excuse for you not to give us something because we also have our fan Q&A where you can ask us anything, literally anything. That's right. What yep. are our opinions on mega franchises? What's our opinion on the Minion mega movie? Mind. Or Megamind. Or what are our favorite colors? You can ask us anything and everything. But we beg of you, ask us something. Worst case yeah. scenario, your question doesn't get featured. Best case scenario, you get your money's worth. Trust me. <laughs> we love to talk. I'm going to go into our philosophy a little bit here, Daniel, and say that it. we're all about creativity and we're all about story. And we want you guys to jump in and be a part of that. And this is the way that we see that that can happen. With that in mind, if you have other ideas for ways that we can bridge that gap, hit us up. Honestly, Daniel and I are stranded on an island and we just want human contact. You can only hang out with one person for so long. All right, guys. Well, I'm Daniel, and this is James, and you've been listening to our podcast, Casually Critical. And regardless of if you send us itched pitches, fan cunes, or none of the above, we will still love you to infinity and beyond. Wrong franchise, right podcast. Have a great day. (laughs) 